Hello, everyone. This is Leona welcoming you to our first edition of Country Music Conversations podcast. Our weekly podcast will hopefully be entertaining, educational, and even informative with compelling content. We'll take a look back at some of the seminal moments from the golden era of country music with the singers and the songwriters whose talent made an impact that's still being remembered today. In the interviews with these artists, you'll get a better glimpse of what made them memorable. We'll include their backgrounds, the stories behind the songs, and catch them in the act of being themselves as we reminisce with the one-on-one conversations. The gamut of country singers will span generations, from Johnny Cash to Garth Brooks, and in the songwriter category, from Harlan Howard to Skip Ewing. On this, our initial podcast, we'll kick it off with one of the legends in country music, songwriter Harlan Howard. But before we start this conversation, here are a few words from our sponsor. Country Music Conversations with Lee Arnold's podcast is made possible by our sponsor, MarketSmith, Inc., the digital media agency that's been growing brands like Toomey, Shark Ninja, New Jersey Lottery, PSE&G, Blue Mercury Cosmetics, and Dick Sporting Goods. You know what makes this agency so good at what they do? Because simply being a marketing agency is no longer enough. Solution-based, problem-solving, and ever-evolving, they create enduring value for DTC and B2B brands by opening up and growing marketing channels. Their patented AI offerings, informed by human intelligence, allow them to act with agility and intellect. I was speaking with the CEO not too long ago, and she was saying they take on clients who know who they are, who want to grow, and clients that know what they want. These big brands choose MarketSmith because they want to merge with a partner who'll make them exceptional and an agency that will grow their revenue. Digital marketing is not easy, but MarketSmith Inc. knows when to make the media dollars work hard for their clients. You have a brand you want to grow? Well, contact MarketSmith.com and tell them Lee Arnold sent you. Harland is a classic example of a rags to riches story. He was born in Louisville, Kentucky, then moved to Detroit early on and grew up on a farm. His introduction and influence of country music came from listening to the Grand Old Opry on Saturday nights. And in his words, quote, I was captured by the songs as much as the singer. They grabbed my heart. The reality of country music moved me. Even as a kid, I liked sad songs, songs that talked about true life. I recognized this music as a simple plea. It beckoned me, unquote. Harlan's formal education consisted of going to school for only nine years. By the time he was 12, he was writing songs. After a stint as a paratrooper with the U.S. Army, he moved to Los Angeles with the dream of selling his songs. He held a number of day jobs while waiting for the big break. Among others, he worked in a printing press plant. And eventually, he sold some of his songs and had some minor success. The big breakthrough came when Charlie Walker recorded Pick Me Up on Your Way Down in 1958. 
Fast forward one year later, Ray Price scored with Heartaches by the Number, achieving the top spot on the country music charts and also was the number one pop hit for Guy Mitchell. Harlan then decided to move to Nashville in 1960. Acuff Rose, who was a major music publisher, saw his potential and signed him to a writing contract. By 1961, Harlan had no less than 15 of his songs on the country music charts, including Patsy Cline's I Fall to Pieces, which was co-written with Hank Cochran, and earned him 15 BMI awards. Patsy recorded He Call Me Baby, which was later a number one hit for Charlie Rich. Although not known as an R&B songwriter, Joe Simon recorded The Chokin' Kind, which ended up as a number one hit on the R&B charts, and later was cut by Waylon Jennings. Harlan also wrote the Kingston Trio hit Everglades and Busted, which turned out to be a big hit for Ray Charles in the pop field. Then Johnny Cash made it a big country smash. Harlan often is credited with the definition of a great country song as Three Chords and the Truth. He was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1973 and the Country Music Hall of Fame in 1997. We lost him in 2002 at the age of 74. This icon and legend, who daily drove down the driveway of his home in his bathrobe to pick up his mail at the end of the driveway, which was, by the way, only 100 feet from the house. Back in the 1980s, I had the good fortune to sit down with Harlan during CMA week, and we had a lovely chat. He was warm, personable, and modest. So now, meet one of country music's finest, my friend, Harlan Howard. The amazing part about country music songwriters is there's a period where they become very hot. A lot of their material is recorded. And they have a lot of songs that are popular. You've had you, your, your career spanned ever since that time, and it seems every year you come up with the magic songs for the artists, whether they're the Forrester Sisters or the Judds or Conway Twitty or Waylon Jennings or Patsy Cline? Well, I've, uh, I don't know, sometimes I go home and goof around and play those old records, and I've really been lucky, Lee. I've had some fantastic records through the years by, I'd say, Jim Rees and Patsy Cline and Brenda Lee, and I mean, it's like they're, they're superb efforts, and some of that doesn't hurt your songs any either, you know? It's, uh, it's like I've been lucky. Your songwriting craft actually started, I guess, Beginning way back in California when you were out there, weren't you, with associations right. with Wynn Stewart? Yeah, it was actually in 55. I met Wynn Stewart and Skeets McDonald and Bobby Bear, and they were all kind of starving. Skeets was the only guy that hit, I think Skeets was on Capitol. He was the only one that was actually in the business, and we were all dreaming and fantasizing. But I got three or four records that year, you know, with, uh, Freddie Hart and different people, Wynn Stewart. So it was like a beginning, but I didn't actually get a hit till say, 58, you know. Speaking about that period, I think one of the first big songs, either 58 or 59, was Charlie Walker with Pick Me Up and Your Way Down. Yeah, that was my first hit. It was my, uh, well, it was Charlie. He was a disc jockey in San Antonio. You know? It was his, his first hit and my first hit, and it did a lot of good for both of us. And he still sings it every Saturday night at the Grand Ole Opry, you know, which pleases me to death. How did you get the idea for those early songs of what we called, what have been called the country California song because you wrote songs like that and also some great hits for Buck Owens? Well, it was, uh, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, nowadays you hear a lot about hook lines and things like that. And 
But I, I never really was into, say, hook lines so much. I always like good titles, you know, like a, I fall to pieces and then you say why, you know, and it's like, it's like the title may give the song away, but I'm, I, did, I wasn't trying to be Hitchcock to begin with, you know what I mean? I'm just, I don't know, I just always, it's, I always think of a title like, would, would you play it on a jukebox? Would it get your attention? If it would, well, it's a good title, you know? Right. One of the interesting stories, I know you have the utmost respect, as everybody does in our business, for probably one of the most incredible names uh, of all, Patsy Cline, who really was a trailblazer as far as gal vocalists were concerned in our business. Uh, Patsy was, the, you know, the longer uh, the longer I lived, and the, the more I realized how great she was. And, and like, really, up till now, uh, you know, from when she died until now, I mean, there's nobody really has came close to what she vocally could do. I mean, like, she could think in her mind and do it with her throat, and I'm still waiting. There's a few girls around that's awfully good, and maybe in a few years when they get up around 30 or something, they might be that good, but I'm anxious to hear them. What was the story behind I Fall to Pieces, which turned out to be one of Patsy's greatest hits? Well, it wasn't that big a deal. I'd I'd only been here a few months, and Hank Cochran came over to my house and uh, said, I'd like to have you... uh, you want to help me write this song? And he had like the first couple lines going. And I said, yeah, I love it. And uh, I didn't even have a, I was renting this little house. So we went out in the garage. It was summertime, you know, and, and we wrote it. And uh, then he went back to the office and he put it on tape. And, you know, it was really a very simple thing. And then Owen Bradley was calling Hank about every two days to see if we had anything new. Because Hank and I and Willie were out there writing our heads off, you know. And, and I, I remember being there and Hank said, yeah, I've got this little song called uh, I Fall to Pieces that Harlan and I wrote. And, Owen says, well, I like that title, Bring It Down. I mean, it was just, just a little guitar demo, and uh, I'm not even sure that Patsy, I think two or three people like Roy Drusky had turned it down, and finally it got Patsy's turn, and Owen, uh, I think he, uh, I don't think she flipped out over it all that much. In my memory, she didn't. She liked it a year later <laughs> when it had been number one for weeks and weeks, but I mean, uh, he, he kind of forced her to do it. But, she, you know, you always, sometimes you fall in love with it, songs after a while. We just told us that. So many stories about so many songs, Harlan, that you've written. And I guess right now, at this time in Nashville, you, you've seen so many changes over the time that you've been here. And there's so many great, talented, young songwriters who have come along that you must be very proud of. Well, it's uh, there's a bunch of uh, kids nowadays that, well, I mean, I call them kids. They're kids compared to me, like Tom Schuyler and Don Slitz and Fred Noblock, you know, and... Uh, Overstreet, we uh, Bob McDill. I mean, it's uh, Wayland Holyfield. I can just I can't remember all the names at the moment, but they're just marvelous. Uh, at least twelve, fifteen great. I call them juveniles here that are just very blessed with talent, you know. And uh, and writing uh, songs, I sure admire and appreciate. And you know, and the world's discovering them. They're doing well. You were one of the first to discover the real talent of Waylon Jennings when he came to town after he left uh, Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, you had a great association with him as far as a lot of the material you wrote for him. Uh, and a lot of great Waylon Jennings hits were from Harlan Howard. Well, Waylon was very special. Uh, actually, I met him through Bobby Bear. I had gotten Bobby on Victor a few years before I met Waylon. And he says, hey, I got this buddy out in Phoenix that sings great and so forth. And uh, so uh, Bobby and I got Waylon with Chet. And I mean, you could... It was easier to do things like that back then, you know. And and then Waylon, uh, he hung out in my office a lot, and uh, he told me not too long ago he's done seventy four of my songs. So I mean, but I didn't really pitch him all those songs. I mean, I'd be putting them on tape, and he'd take them away from me. I mean, it was like reverse English or something. But anyhow, Waylon's one of my all time favorites, and uh, 
uh, I, I mean, it was so obvious back then that he was a star, and all he really had to do was, you know, get a chance. There are so many great Waylon Jennings songs by Harlan Howard, but there's one that just stands out in my mind. It's probably one of the most poetic and beautiful songs that have been written. It was written actually as a poem called Yours Love. You remember that? Yeah. I was getting married. <laughs> one other time I was getting married. I think I'm getting unmarried now. But anyhow, uh, I, uh, I wrote this. <laughs> I'm so selfish. I wrote this poem. That it was called My Wedding Prayer. And I, I wrote it to give to my fiance, you know, and I got to looking at it and made the fruit of my toe be yours, love. The melody started forming in my mind, so I scratched out my wedding prayer and put yours, love, up there, and it makes me blush. <laughs> be so mercenary, but I did it. But that, anyhow, I gave her the money from the song. <laughs> so it has a happy yeah, ending. <laughs> I mean, you know, so she was, I guess she'd rather have that than the poem. <laughs> Recently, you've had a a great facility of writing hits year in and year out, and one of the great success stories is, has been the Judds, who won last night at the CMA, again for Vocal Duo of the Year. And uh, they were quite successful with a couple of songs of yours, and they've recorded quite a few, including the first called Blue Nun Cafe, and then the biggie called Why Not Me. Well, uh, it's fun working. Those are great girls, and it's... Uh I think we were talking earlier off the mic. I'm just kind of real anxious for Winona to get a few years under her belt, start doing real good heart songs like Patsy used to do, you know. And it's like, you know, uh, she's just a kid right now and marvelous. Plus, I'm anxious to, I mean, she's so good now. I'm anxious to hear how great she sings 10 years from now because she'll even be better, you know. And uh, they're fun people. You uh, collaborated, was it Sunny Throckmorton with Why Not Me? Right. Well, Sonny and I and Brent Mayer got together. That was a deliberate effort to make money, <laughs> which you got to do in this business, or, you know, if you're going to make your car payment. But we deliberately sat down to write them a killer song to follow up. Mama, he's crazy. And we wanted it. We wanted it to be exciting. And we wanted, you know, and it just, uh, you know, we tried a couple of times before that and failed to really write anything that good. This is like the third time we got together and it uh, it just worked out. I mean, it was we knew as soon as we wrote it, you know, and uh, Sonny's sitting there singing it, that we had exactly what Brent Mayer needed, you know, to produce a hit. And, you know, it was one of those instant hits. Talk about hits. I guess when you give a song to a, a well-known artist and you feel that the song is a hit, and when you hear the song played back, whether it's in the studio or whether you hear it on the air for the first time, do you ever get the feeling that that's not the way it was supposed to be sung or I wrote it? Well, you know, I've had a... I've learned a lot. I, I remember my first, my biggest hit really has been Heartaches by the Number. And uh, I learned what I don't know. <laughs> I uh, I loved Ray Price's record. He did it exactly like I wrote it. And then this guy named Guy Mitchell did it, and he started whistling and, you know, ukuleles playing. I thought, geez, look what has he done to my song. And my God, that was a big international hit, you know, and sold several million records. And it was, you know, it learned, uh, it taught me a lot about doing sad songs happy. There's, you know, I've heard a lot of hits done that way since, but I didn't. I'm a factory worker. What's the guy done to my song? Well, later on, I got to liken it, too. <laughs> <laughs> After the royalty checks yeah, come in. Yeah, that was it. Another great hit that uh, was recorded not too, not too long ago by Conway Twitty was a, I, I would call it a classic country song and a classic Harlan Howard favorite called I Don't Know a Thing About Love. Well, yeah, that was, uh, that's fun. It was, it, after all these years, see, I got Conway with Owen Bradley when he did, decided he wanted to be a country singer many years ago, and so he's recorded a lot of songs of mine in his albums, but we never had a number one hit. And uh, to tell you the truth, I never even thought he would like that song. In fact, I wasn't sure anybody would. It was just a fun song, and, and I was just playing with words, you know, and you can almost tell that when you 
listened to it, and and then all of a sudden down it got a little uh, mystical at the bottom, you know, and the moon's telling you, hey, I can't answer these questions, but somebody else can, and you know, and then all of a sudden I said, wow, that's a pretty nice song, and I'd sang it first, you know, I mean, it was just, uh, it was just an accidental song, uh, I was just playing, and then Conway did it, and and that delighted me, you know, because after all those years, we owed each other a hit. You've really run the musical spectrum, Harlan, in your writing. I mean, you write everything from a very tender love ballad to what we would call a standard country song to what we refer to these days, and I guess years ago, as the story song. And I guess one of the most incredible songs that was ever written was a song by Jim Reeves called The Blizzard. Uh, it's strange that you mentioned that song because uh, I just, a couple, three days ago, gave a copy of this to my friend Jerry Jeff Walker and uh, you know because he's Texas boy and he's was uh, he's trying to get some songs together for another album and he'd never heard it you know and uh, it's one of the most marvelous records I've ever had to this day it you know I'm more talking about back in the days of mono and you know two tracks and so forth and uh, I just uh, I've had very little success getting that song recorded by anybody because Jim Reeves record is so good Jim was a perfectionist in every sense of the word, wasn't he? I've heard so many great stories about Jim Reeves and how meticulous he was in his approach to recording and picking material. Yeah, well, I, I used to live near him in Madison, and uh, I'd go to his house, and sometimes he'd play me other people's songs, and it was strange how he thought. He said, he'd say, now, this song is a number one hit, you know. Now, this song here is also a number one hit, but it also might be uh, more people than the country fans might like it. But Jim, always, he was real sharp he always made sure he put out number one hits that was his basic thrust and then once in a while he'd have you know four walls or he'll have to go or something an all-market hit but he always was very very selective they say that the <clears throat> we were talking about changes before in nashville i guess one of the big changes talking to people like yourself and friends of yours like willie nelson and hank cochran and Roger Miller, in the days of the mid-60s, when you guys together, it was a fraternity. You would sit around, you would trade songs, you would pitch each other songs, you would play things for each other. That magic and that camaraderie or that fraternalism has gone. It's not the same anymore. Well, uh, I miss those guys, you know. And I mean, I, tonight I'm going to be sitting with them, so it's going to be fun, you know, at the BMI banquet. But uh, they live in different places. Willie, of course, is a star, you know, and Hank Cochran's not in town much, and... And, uh, you know, Roger Miller's moved away. And, but it's like the old gang is broken up, except I'm having a lot of fun hanging around with the new gang that's in town. And, uh, you know, I get a lot of respect from them, and I care about them. And, you know, and I'm, uh, I help them if I can. They're helping themselves awfully good right now, you know. And uh, I just I compete with them. But yet there is a brotherhood here, and it's uh, they don't honky-tonk quite as much as we used to, you know. And, uh, I mean, the old Tootsies days are gone. And, uh, you know, as everybody's hid away behind walls and, and locked doors and so forth. But uh, there, is a, there is a brotherhood going on. And, in fact, I just saw three marvelous songwriters down the hallway down. We were just delighted to see each other, you know. Right now, Harlan, I guess country music, because of its changes in Nashville, is growing. And, and Willie said it in the CMA show last night. If there isn't change, there's been a change in the audience. That, that will perpetuate our, our art form, which is the music that America loves most. And I'm sure that you have a lot of uh, dreams for yourself for country music, just to keep writing hits and keep fishing. Have you ever had a time in your career where you had a writer's block or you just had that slump and you couldn't think of a darn thing? Uh, well, what, what happens to me is, like, I've been writing, say, since December, since Christmas time, pretty, you know, I, I mean, I consider it about fourth throttle, but actually it's about as much as 
any of my buddies are writing. You know, I've just slowed the tempo way down and tried, you know, not to get all tensed up about it. But I just took like a month off, which I'm right in the middle of, and I don't, I'm deliberately taking a mental vacation. I'm pitching the few songs I've got that I like. And, but uh, I've had, you know, I've, I remember I've had slumps where I thought, boy, I've written my last song or this and that. But actually, if you love, if you love music, I mean, I don't, see, I've learned now you can't quit. I mean, there's no getting off place. There's no retiring. I'm going to go down swinging and writing. And I don't care if I'm 90. I will be, I may be rewriting heartaches with a number because I'm senile or something, but I'll be writing something, you know. I think you had a great facility of recognizing talent. And there was a young lady years ago who's Little Miss Dynamite, who's since become such a great star. And, and is a professional as much now as she was when she was eight years old, Brenda Lee, and you wrote one of her biggest hits called Too Many Rivers, which has become a classic. Well, it's uh, see everything. On the way in here, uh, my secretary drove me over here, and I was playing her a cassette somebody gave me of Jerry Lee doing that song, and that's uh, so good. I don't even know when he did it, but I missed, I missed the fact that he'd done it. And uh, it's uh, and then some of it, like the Forrester sisters, are fixing to record that, and I understand. And so it's like that old song's about to come back, looks like. But I mean, Brenda Lee was just so incredible, and, and back then she sold more records. I mean, than most people ever dreamed of. I mean, it was like she sold two million records of that in Japan. I mean, this is after America and England and all that stuff. Uh, nobody quite realizes how great she has been. Your writing process, how do the ideas come? Everybody has a different technique as to writing a hit song. Uh, I don't know. I, I, like I like to look for a title. And, uh, you know, and I like heart songs. I especially like sad songs. And, uh, you know, and I'm not a sad person, but I like drama. I mean, I just, I just like, you can get so much more out of that than you can out of uh, I Love You or I can't seem to find a lot of new ways to say I love you, so I don't try too hard. But I do like dramatic songs and heartache songs or you know and and i like honky-tonk songs a lot and that naturally gets you into the heartbreak of psoriasis or whatever you know so i mean it's just uh, what i'm doing is just what i like it's hard to pick you know a song which stands out in your mind as as one that you know is a notch above all the others because it's like saying i want to pick my favorite child but is there any one song which you wrote which you feel is probably the best thing you ever wrote in your life that you never could repeat that kind of successor artistry with well for years the blizzard was was it until i wrote a song called no charge that melba montgomery did no charge is uh, a strange song for me to write and i had to struggle with it for six months i i'd never been a pregnant woman <laughs> so i mean it's tough to write a song from a mother's standpoint you know so i had a lot of trouble dealing with that you know and i mean i mean it took me a long time to write that but i consider that probably the most special song i've written so far I guess for anybody in the world in country music, you've had it all both as a, as a songwriter and someone who's had the longevity and also the popularity of your work all these many years in Nashville. And uh, as I said before, when it comes to the word legend, it's bandied about loosely, but Harlan Howard certainly is a legend in our business as far as a songwriter is concerned and a role model for others to follow. Harlan, any wishes, desires for the next year or the n next 10 years here in Nashville for you? Oh, I just... I just want to be a part of it, you know, and I just want to write my songs and, you know, and hope that uh, get a good record now and then. And I'm interested in all the great young singers that are coming along. And uh, I'm, uh, I've got my ear to the ground. I'm a fan. And uh, if I like their singing, I want a record by them, you know, and I will nail them eventually, you know. And I just, uh, I think there's a lot of exciting things going on in the music. Country music is proven it's not dead. And thank God for that, or I'd have to go fishing the rest of my life. But it's... Uh, 
I'm excited about country music, music in general, the great songs, not just ours, but the, like say the kind Phil Collins is doing. Somebody's writing him some marvel. You know what I'm talking about is I just think songs are coming back, and that's that's good for me. Harlan, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy week here, and uh, good luck and all the very best here in the future. It's always a, a, a joy to see you. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. There you have it, Harlan Howard. As far as country songwriters go, he truly set the bar high for others to follow. Harlan was so down to earth, no ego, not pretentious in any way. I still marvel at his genius and perhaps his greatest trait, his humility. A snapshot of a genius who really cared. Early on in his quest for success and financial stability, Harlan worked tirelessly to write songs that to this day touch the heart and the human condition. Once he achieved all he set out to do, Harlan was generous with the young Turks, the young struggling songwriters, and he welcomed them into his circle. He advised, encouraged, listened, and even praised their determination to walk in his shoes by taking time to critique their work. His legacy are the lyrics and melodies of some of the finest country songs ever written. Join me next week on Country Music Conversations while my guest will be Keith Whitley. Until then, stay safe and keep it country.